This episode of Do You Want to Hear a Story is intended for adult audiences. It may contain graphic descriptions and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. How long do you think it would take for a mother to forget the face of her missing child? Five years? Ten years? Twenty years? I doubt a mother would ever really forget, but I can guarantee she hasn't forgotten after five months of her son's disappearance. Do you want to hear a story? Will you give a few seconds of your time? Good evening, folks. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? The energy crisis. Want to hear my story? It was the beginning of the golden age of cinema. The years leading up to the Great Depression, automobiles began to fill the streets and families flocked to set up home. It was the 1920s in Los Angeles. It was the decade that Buster Keaton bought us The Navigator, The Playhouse and Sherlock Jr. Hitchcock bought us Blackmail, Downhill and The Lodger and Chaplin's The Kid bought in over $5 million at the box office. These were the years that shaped Los Angeles. The population ballooned out from half a million to over 1.2 million residents. The famous Chinese theatre on Hollywood Boulevard opened up, and real estate developers Woodrow and Schultz began marketing their new development, Hollywoodland, with 50 feet high letters in the hills that lit up, Holly, then Wood, then Land. 25 years later they dropped the land, and it would become the sign that we know today. As impressive a place Los Angeles was quickly becoming, the reality was far from all the glitz and glamour for most. And while history often skews things in a more positive light, the 20s in Los Angeles had many dark times. A dark cloud hung over the city in 1928. People were fearful. The city felt different. The residents of Los Angeles were still reeling from what the LA Times were calling the most horrible crime of the 1920s. Now today's story is not that of Marion Parker, but it's important you know what happened. Marion went missing on December 15th of 1927. An unknown man posing as an employee of her father's, Perry, checked her out of school, stating that her father had suffered an accident. The next day, the Parker family received ransom notes demanding $1,500 in gold. The letters were signed with various titles including Fate, Death, and The Fox. Following the orders of ransom, Perry Parker a bank employee, met his daughter's abductor in central Los Angeles on December 17th, 1927. With the exchange of the money, the kidnapper drove away, throwing Marion's mutilated body out of the car as he fled. She had been significantly disfigured, her limbs cut off, her eyes fixed open with wires, and her abdomen disemboweled and stuffed with rags. Her limbs were later discovered at a local park. Marion Parker's murderer was soon identified as William Edward Hickman, a 19-year-old former co-worker of Perry Parker's. Police officers tracked Hickman throughout the Pacific Northwest over several days, relying on sightings in Albany, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. He was arrested in Echo, Oregon, on December 22, 1927. He was extradited back to California, where he was convicted of Marion's murder. 
He was one of the first defendants in California to use what was then a new law, which allowed defendants to plead that they were not guilty by reason of insanity. Hickman was convicted of the murder and sentenced to death. After an unsuccessful appeal, he was executed by hanging at San Quentin State Prison in October of 28. While the city tried to deal with the aftermath of the most horrific crime in LA's history, 40-year-old Christine and her 9-year-old son, Walter Collins, lived their life. Christine worked as a manager at the phone company. Family values were instilled at an early age. Her parents immigrated from England and Ireland, and they worked hard to provide a life for Christine and her brothers and her sisters. Upon coming to America, the family moved around from California to Hawaii before settling in Seattle. And when it came time for Christine to venture out on her own, she chose California as the place to be. She met and married the armed robber, Walter Anson, who by that time was going by Walter Collins. They settled in Lincoln Heights, and in 1918, they welcomed their son, Walter Collins Jr. While Walter Collins Sr. kept a legitimate job working on the streetcars, when his son was five, in 1923, he was arrested for armed robbery. The headline, Masked Bandit Holds Up a Car Crew at Gunpoint. He was sentenced and placed at Folsom State Prison. Nine years later, he would die in prison. Christine stayed devoted to her husband and focused on raising their son. On March 10th of 1928, for a moment things felt okay. Christine waved goodbye to Walter, a penny in his pocket as he rushed down the street to the local cinema. Kids played in the street, the weather was perfect, a few months had passed since the arrest of William Hickman, and things felt like they were going to be okay. The sun began to set, and a little worry began to set in for Christine. Walter should have been back by now. She paced the pavement out the front of their home, waiting for him to appear at the end of the street. With the arrival of night, Christine went door to door asking each of Walter's friends if they knew where he was. With nothing but worry now, Christine went to the police. The LAPD of the 1920s were understood to be quite a corrupt and incompetent body of law enforcement. Most officers, along with the city's politicians, were controlled by the mobsters and the rich elite. Between the rich and the mobsters, they had the city completely under control, and very few police officers managed to remain neutral. Complaints from the people began to stack up, with the police solving very little crime, and it wasn't long before the LAPD found themselves wrapped up in a number of corruption scandals. A missing child was the perfect opportunity for the force to build a little good grace with the people of Los Angeles. All they had to do now was find Walter. But days quickly turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, and Walter was still yet to be brought home. Several tips came in, but none of any real use. A gas station attendant in Glendale, Richard Struthers, reported seeing a dead boy wrapped in a newspaper in the back of a car when a foreign couple stopped to ask for directions. A man by the name of C.V. Stately followed the couple when they left the gas station. The couple stopped for a few moments in the front of a police station and then sped out of town, losing Stately. When the police showed both men a photo of Walter Collins, they both agreed he was the boy in the back of the car. Other tips came in about a couple travelling across the state with a boy who was begging them to let him go. By now the pressure was mounting for the police, and notices began appearing in the newspaper. Walter Collins, American, age 9, height about 4 feet 5 inches, weight 75 pounds, 
Husky build, brown hair, blue eyes, fair complexion, rather thick lips. Wearing at the time of his disappearance a red plaid lumber jacket, long brown corduroy trousers, a grey cap and black shoes. The boy disappeared from his home at about 5pm the evening of March 10th, 1928, and he may be with a man described as being Italian, aged 35 to 40 years, height about 5 foot 9 inches, weight about 160 pounds, wearing a dark grey suit and a dark grey slouch hat, rather soiled. This man may be driving a large sedan colour or make unknown, or may not have a car. He may be in the company of a woman described as being very small, no description of the woman or clothing. Possible, these people may be attempting to take the boy to San Francisco, or he may still be in Los Angeles. It's barely possible that the boy may be found on the streets selling papers. Report any information regarding the case to Captain J.J. Jones, Crime Prevention Division. Now, when we say the pressure was mounting for the police, it was all on Captain Jones's shoulders. He knew he must find Walter at any cost for the sake of the Los Angeles Police Department's reputation. Single focus at this point, the police drew no connection to Walter and a number of other missing children. Nelson and Lewis Winslow, 10 and 12 year olds that went missing from their home, only 20 miles from Walter's home in May of 1928. No connection was made with the headless Latino boy that was found in February of 28, again, only 20 miles from Walter's disappearance and constant complaints from a neighbour about a man mistreating a young boy on his poultry farm 40 miles away did not register as a potential connection for police. As it stood, Captain Jones needed to reunite Christine Collins with her son, but as it would turn out, Jones would settle for even a Walter lookalike at this point. In August of 1928, police picked up a boy calling himself Arthur Kent in Chicago, Illinois. He would only tell police that his father had abandoned him. He was placed with a temporary family, and soon enough, he would admit that he was in fact Walter Collins, and he'd been lying to protect his father. Police in Illinois contacted the Los Angeles Police Department and sent photos of the apparent Walter. Instantly, Christine confirmed that was not her son, but Captain Jones talked her into taking him home and trying him out. She protested, and the police worked to convince her that she wasn't thinking straight because of the trauma she'd suffered over the last five months. They did everything they could to make her believe this was in fact her son. He only looked a little different because he too had suffered from the trauma, and most likely starvation. As far as the police were concerned, this was a job well done. They had the public gather so that they could witness the reuniting of Walter and Christine. They were no longer the incompetent police force. They had done the impossible. They'd found Walter. Case closed. Convinced of the truth, Christine returned to Jones three weeks after the public spectacle, armed with evidence that she was living with an imposter. Dental records, signed petitions from friends and teachers. This was not Walter. As a result of her protest, police accused Christine of neglect and attempting to mislead a police investigation. A combination of worry and arrogance, Jones was convinced that Christine's protests would fuel the negative reputation the police department had even further. He had her committed to an insane asylum. Now, the police were a little different in the early parts of the century. They operated in a way of complete authority, not to be trifled with, especially by a worried mother. 
they would do whatever it took to protect their reputation. They worked hard to discredit Christine, labelling her a bad mother and a liar, one looking to skirt her responsibilities as a mother. Christine was incarcerated under Code 12, which allowed at that time police to lock anyone up they deemed insane or uncooperative. Ten days later, she was released, with the hope now that she'd learn her lesson and would go back and be a good mother to new Walter. She, along with a local pastor, who too believed the police were corrupt and incompetent, went to the press to publicly speak against the police and make known the fact they had returned the wrong boy. The story would quickly gain national attention, and the spotlight forced fake Walter to reveal himself and reveal the fact that he had lied. He was really Arthur Hutchins Jr. His initial plan was to get as far away from his stepmother as possible and find a way to get to Hollywood. The 12-year-old was cluey enough to see some resemblance between himself and Walter, and he took that as a chance to make it to California. While the police were now forced to actually work on Walter's case, something horrific was unfolding on that poultry farm just 40 miles from Walter's home. A detective, Lester Yabara, was signed to arrest and deport illegal Canadian immigrants that were at the poultry ranch in Wineville. One of the captured boys, Sanford Clark, disclosed the horrific crimes that were being committed by his mother and his uncle, Sarah and Gordon Northcote. Reports of constant sexual abuse and repeated beatings. In police custody, the 15-year-old Sanford told police that he was forced to help his mother and uncle in the killing of children, children that his uncle had abducted and sexually abused. The investigation opened became what is known as the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. While police found no bodies at the ranch, they did find body parts and murder weapons. And after a failed attempt to flee back to Canada, the Northcutts admitted to the murder of all the children, including Walter Collins. They would both go on to retract their statement of the killing of Walter, and ultimately Gordon Northcote was tried and convicted of the murders of the two missing brothers and the Latino boy, all taken from within 20 miles of Walter. Sarah Northcote was tried and convicted for the murder of Walter and served 12 years. Gordon Northcote's trial began in January of 1929. Northcote fired several attorneys and went on to defend himself. He admitted to abusing young boys because he loved them. He even had his mother testify for him. She would go on to claim that she was actually his grandmother because her husband had raped her daughter, Winifred, and Northcote was actually Winifred's son. Northcote also claimed to have an incestuous relationship with his sister, Sarah, and that his father had molested him. Northcote's defense was, to put it mildly, rather odd, and it was obvious that he was no lawyer. Along with the strange defense, Sarah didn't prove to be a very credible witness since the only continuous statement she would make was that she would do anything for Gordon. He was sentenced to death and hanged in 1930. This wasn't the end of the story for Christine though. With clear neglect from the Los Angeles Police Department, she sued them twice and won. She was awarded $10,800 to be paid by Captain J.J. Jones, something that he never did. Before his hanging, Northcote spoke with Christine. He promised to tell her what happened if she came and visited him, which she did. Through a series of incomprehensible answers and confusing conversation, Christine concluded that he was in fact crazy. 
but not convinced that Walter was at the ranch. It may be true, or it may have been the easiest way for Christine to go on with hope that Walter was still out there. For the next 36 years, she continued to look for Walter, never giving up, never giving in, until her death on December 8th, 1964. Walter was never found. And now, folks, it's time to say thanks again for dropping in. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. And hope we bring the final. Hope you've enjoyed the evening as much as we've enjoyed having you. Carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night, now.